Now, KRXA 540 brings you food for the mind, body, heart, and soul. Here's Talking Matters with your host, Dr. Joan Kenley. Hello, you're listening to Talking Matters. I'm Joan Kenley, here with my guests, Kay Copet and Joyce Goodell. Kay lives with her husband, Brian, and their adopted daughter, Mariah, nearby in the Oakland Hills. She has written and produced a documentary of her codependency story called I Survived, One Woman's Journey of Self-Healing and Transformation, which covers 15 years of living with an alcoholic. Besides being a mother and wife, she continues her love of painting, writing, teaching, and speaking. Her passion is not only the arts, but to help other people through her inspirational stories. Kay has published several articles and writes a monthly column for RecoveryTimes.com. Joyce works as a family therapist in the chemical dependency field. Her earlier career was in radio and television, advertising, promotion, and production, before she decided to return to graduate school to earn her master's degree in counseling psychology at John F. Kennedy University. She's the head of the family therapy program at Merritt Peralta Institute, which is part of Alta Bates Summit Medical Center in Oakland. She also has a private practice that specializes in codependency issues. Kay and Joyce, I am so pleased you could be with us today. And Kay, would you begin by introducing yourself to our audience? I'd be happy to. I am the sole survivor of a family who all died from alcoholism or drug abuse. I've lost my mother, my father, my stepfather, my brother, my ex-husband, and my dearest girlfriend to this disease. And I made it out. I survived. I wasn't alcoholic. I'm not alcoholic, but... I'm a codependent, and I'm very grateful for my survival. Well, you know, when you say alcoholism and then you talk about codependency, we will cover that in the next segment, just how to define those two things. And they do go together, and they are separate. So continue. (laughs) When I was young, I knew my home life was chaotic. I wasn't sure what was wrong. I mean, you don't know that as a child. No, you don't. I did know that I didn't have any love, I was never held, or I didn't have any affection, and I saw a lot of craziness, and I started covering up for my mother and my stepfather at a very young age, and I kept secrets. Because I was so embarrassed by all the dysfunction in our home, I didn't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. So I, I felt like I was alone, you the bet. only person in the world that had this problem. And I didn't even really understand what the problem was. I found myself becoming a workaholic. I overreacted. I, In order to feel good about myself, I walked like three miles to take dancing lessons. I talked the teacher into allowing me to help the other kids dance. If she would teach me, I did anything I could to get out of my house and develop myself, my own artistic abilities. And that's how you survived. That is how I survived. Yeah. And I did art. I would go in my bedroom and I'd go under the covers and I would draw pictures. And this continued throughout my whole life. I became very um, interested in getting an education. I was determined that I was not going to be like my relatives. I wasn't sure what they were, though. I didn't, because alcoholism is so insidious, I wasn't clear that they weren't crazy. I, I just knew they were strange. I didn't realize that what they were ingesting was creating 
this imbalance. Mm -hmm. They were loving people in their heart, but I didn't see that. Yeah, that's important for people to hear, that you don't see it when you're part of it. And I didn't have anyone to turn to or ask because there weren't any, any normal, healthy adults to guide me. Mm-hmm. I became the do-gooder, the uh, placator, the helper, the covering up. Like if, if there wasn't food on the table, I would make the food. Or I'd if there weren't groceries, I'd make sure that, that I brought the groceries into the house. And I continued that kind of behavior actually my whole life. And it led me into meeting a man when I was 29 years old who had been in prison and who was alcoholic. But that's all I knew was this crazy, chaotic behavior. So that felt normal to you, to fall in love with somebody who was an alcoholic. Though from a rational point of view, we would say, why could she ever fall in love with someone like this? At that point, I had a master's degree. I was successful. I was a very successful artist. I had moved myself across the country to Boston, and my girlfriends were so upset when I met this man and decided to move back across the country with him that they called each other in different states. What is wrong with her? She's successful. She's a, they didn't get it either. She's marrying this alcoholic crazy man. And that's just what I did. And then I had 15 years of quite an adventure. <laughs> I mean, it was what I call living in hell. Yes. And we're going to talk about that story in our next segment. But you actually had a happy ending over the last 18 years to this problem with the husband. And maybe you could tell us about that. I did recover. I did about 25 years ago or 30 years ago, I started my recovery. And I am happily married to a man. This is this will be our 20th year of marriage. And he is 19 years younger than I am. I'm older than his mother. How very interesting. It's fantastic. Yes. It really is fantastic. I'm sure. And we have a very happy marriage. And... Ten years ago, we adopted a little baby who's now 10, and we did that when I was 54. And all I can say is my life has gone from black to white to golden. Because oh, that's a great way to say it. It's a fabulous life, and it's, it's all because I had the courage to get well and to face the truth about what was wrong with me mm-hmm. and, and what had happened to me. And I'm so lucky, and, and also my belief in God. Mm-hmm. I really believe that my spiritual beliefs or believing in a higher power helped me get through all of the tragedies and all of the pain that I suffered for 40 years. I think it's very important for our listeners to hear that people can really recover and that there is a place to find courage in oneself no matter how far along in an, any addiction that you might be. And for those people who have addicts in the family, of course, that's very important to hear, too. So, Joyce, you have a story to tell, I think. The type of work I do is helping people like Kay, uh, because I was one of those people at one time in my life, too, when somebody helped me, because I am the former spouse of somebody who is alcoholic as well. And then I decided to go back to graduate school and um, after you know working in journalism and, and broadcasting, went back to study this because I thought, I just need to know everything that there possibly is about this or I will make the same mistake again. 
And so that's my road to becoming a therapist. And the work that I do now is helping people like UK understand what's going on. Um, oftentimes I tell people that it's like you feel like you're in the twilight zone and your reality doesn't make sense and you feel like you're crazy. And it's very difficult to make sense of it until you come to be with people who understand it and have documented it and make it make it real for you and then have a plan to, to help you out of it like you found. But also you mentioned that you were married to an alcoholic and how did you recover from that? I mean, how did you look at that as uh, or wake up to that as a problem? I mean, we'll go into the last segment of the second hour about what re recovery really is, but I would just like to hear a little bit right now about what was that journey like for you? Well, what I first did, Joan, um, I went to Al-Anon. Okay. Uh, which is the 12-step program for family members and friends of alcoholics and addicts. So I started going to Al-Anon and really recognizing that this is exactly what was happening because, as Kay said, um, you don't really know what's going on. You don't know exactly that your spouse or whoever in your life is, maybe they're drinking too much, but how is that affecting them in their thinking and um, their emotions, and then it affects you as well. So when I went to Allen and I started learning about it, and also I was public service coordinator at a television station in Nashville, Tennessee, where the um, the campaign that year for public service was alcohol and drug abuse. Oh and so I was really learning a, a lot about it while I was working in the field and then going to Al-Anon, and then I recognized that this is exactly what I was going through. So when my ex-husband got into treatment, we did have him go to a treatment center in, in uh, Los Angeles, and then I went into family therapy treatment at a treatment center in Nashville. Um, so I, I learned all about it at the treatment center in Nashville. So did he recover, and are you still married? We're not married. He went through several treatment centers, and as far as I know, I don't believe he's, he's in recovery at this point. Well, that's a sad story. Yeah. That's one that didn't work so well. But yeah. did that actually inspire you to go into codependency counseling in a certain way because of your particular experiences? I had a fabulous therapist in Nashville. Uh, two of them, as a matter of fact, that were just fabulous therapists. And it encouraged me to want to learn more about it and help other people. And then from doing that, then I went on to become a therapist. But don't you think that when you have actually been through the situation yourself, you bring something else to the picture? Because a counselor who's counseling addicts who's never been up close and personal with that situation doesn't have the same rapport or empathy, do they? I don't think so. And most of the therapists that I work in the field with are either recovering addicts themselves and they work with the addicts or family therapists. It helps to have been, you know, a family member mm -hmm. of an addict. I think it would be very difficult to be a therapist in chemical dependency work without understanding from a personal experience. I know people do, but when you have the personal experience, you know what to look for. You know the signs that people are saying. You can read between the lines. Did you all hit a point where you made a decision to actually change? I mean, was there just a moment of aha or was it a gradual thing that happened to you? With me, it was instantaneous. I mean, I was in denial for so many years sure. that after so many incidences with my husband, car crashes and accidents and money being stolen and so many problems, I knew I needed help. Mm -hmm. But I was after help for my husband. 
I didn't really realize that I needed the help. Okay. I looked in the phone book under Alcoholics Anonymous, and I found this group in San Rafael. And as I was walking there, I had intense chills that something was dramatically was going to change in my life. And I walked into that office, and the woman that greeted me and who talked with me stood up, and she was a recovering alcoholic, and I started whining and complaining. I was in such pain about living with an alcoholic that I was talking about him. He did this, and he did that, and he crashed this car. And she got up from her seat, and she pounded her fist on the desk and said, Kay, I don't want to hear about him. I want to hear about you. Don't you understand this? If you were a healthy woman, you wouldn't be married to a man like that. I was in shock because I had never thought for one minute that I wasn't healthy. What a wonderful moment for you. That's so great. That's such a great story. Joyce, what about you? I don't remember the exact moment, but I remember the feeling. I remember the feeling of it was, it was more pain staying with it than doing something about it. And I felt like this is just too painful. I have to find out what to do about this. And that's what I usually tell clients now too. When the pain within yourself gets so great, you will make an effort to do something about it because you can't stand the status quo. Because you just can't stand it anymore. It's interesting. The subject of how one decides to change really fascinates me. And Marilyn Ferguson has a great comment about that. She says, no one can persuade another to change. Each of us guards a gate of change that can only be opened from the inside. And we cannot open the gate of another, either by argument or by emotional appeal. I thought that was a pretty profound mm-hmm. quote, don't you think? Yes. And so in the end, deciding to change really is personal. It can happen in an instant or be a process that unfolds over time, if we, as we've just heard. Either way, it's the result of making a decision and then acting on it accordingly. As simple as this sounds, the idea that we hold the key to our own change is powerful and also not so easy to understand. Clearly, we all know things we should do that could improve our lives, lose some weight, save more money, get a new job, yet we don't do many of them, and we don't sometimes know why. Well, when it comes to deciding to change addictive behavior, answering the question is even more complicated. This leads us directly into the messy territory of motivation and what ultimately makes people do what they do. So we'll be coming back in the next segment with lots of conversation about what motivates us, what's the difference between male and female alcoholic addiction, and what are some of the stories that we can tell here in the room. So we'll be right back. Talking Matters with Dr. Joan Kenley will continue in a moment on KRXA 540. Talking Matters with Dr. Joan Kenley continues now on KRXA 540. Welcome back. You're listening to Talking Matters, and I'm Joan Kenley, here with my guests, Kay Copet and Joyce Goodell. 
Today we're talking about addictions, codependency, and recovery, and what you need to know. Well, addictions can be mental, physical, and emotional, and we're going to get into that in this hour. And addictions aren't just to alcohol, drugs, or tobacco. Addictions can be to gambling, overspending, overeating, and so many more conditions. And so we'll include that, too. We want to also address the definition of codependence. As clinical observations have been made of codependence, it became apparent that people who were damaged by living with chemical addicts did not differ significantly from people damaged by living with other kinds of dysfunctional people. The term codependent has been expanded to account for people who have been damaged by living in a relationship with any kind of dysfunctional person, regardless of the cause of dysfunction. So as we come into this subject of alcoholism and codependence, we know there are stories that both Joyce and Kay have to tell about that in their lives. And so we want to just get into those stories now, and it will come clear how alcoholism and codependency are intertwined, or any other addiction and codependency are intertwined. When I moved to Boston, I was a teacher at the time, and I was extremely lonely, but I was successful in my career, and I was always looking for a man. I mean... I felt that I had to have somebody in my life to make me whole. And I had the opportunity to meet this young man. I didn't know it at the time, but I found out very quickly, had just been released from prison. And along with that came a guy who was alcoholic, but I also didn't know to call him alcoholic. He drank all the time. and he. But would he act drunk, or would he just act like he was having a good time? He would act very high, very giddy, very silly. and But it didn't matter to me because I was so eager to have a relationship. And in some ways, I could control this. Although I didn't know that either, I could control it because he had just gotten out of jail. He had nowhere to go. And I thought, oh, he's really a smart guy, which he was. He was very talented and very smart. And I thought, well, I can help him. Help is the, is the oh, word. Oh, there you go. I'll take care of this guy. Oh. And I will turn this around. Mm-hmm. He's such a good person because I did see what, there's always the other side. Oh, sure. I saw wonderful things and we played together. We laughed. But what I didn't realize, we were acting silly. It was immature. It wasn't what a, a healthy couple would do. But so there was, was a sense of magical thinking in how you could not only take care, but that it could be fixed. It could be fixed, and I was also drinking along with him. And right. I'm not alcoholic, but mm-hmm. I was. I was because I thought it was the thing to do. It was having wine and have dinner together, and it didn't matter to me that he'd been in jail because I thought he'd, he'd gotten a bum rap, or it wasn't true. You know, he's really a good person, and he hasn't had the right experience. He's, he was adopted when he was he was uh, had a foster family, and I had made all these excuses for him, mm-hmm. and I continued to do that for 15 years. That's a long time. Yes, it is. You could see his potential. Potential. There's always potential. And I learned years later when I was getting healthy, my girlfriend said, Kay, there's always potential in everyone. But I, did, I was hoping because I knew how smart he was and how talented. And, and that, your love could bring it out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, and that the denial factor is strong. I mean, as a strong woman, you could have really strong denial. Oh. You could have really strong hope. You could have a really strong desire to make everything okay because of your past. That's exactly right. So, Joyce, what, 
Well, you asked how chemical dependency and codependency are intertwined. And I think, you know, Case talking about that a little bit, how the denial in codependency is so strong, you know, as strong in many cases as it is in addiction. Well, that's an interesting way to put it. Because we know that when we see it, when we finally see either addiction or codependency, then we're going to have to do something about it. So I think we protect ourselves with our denial so that we can just stay the same as we are right now. Um, You also mentioned about how the difference in men and women in addiction is. And I think um, intertwined with codependency, because women are taught codependent behaviors in our development. We're taught to think about other people a lot and get outside of ourselves and give to other people. But when we do that, we deny ourselves and we lose who we are inside because we're focusing so much on everyone else. And so oftentimes women in chemical dependency then are also extremely codependent, oftentimes more often than men are codependent. But when women are codependent and also addicts, their recovery is a lot more difficult. I recently lost a dear friend to alcoholism. She committed suicide three years ago. Oh, dear. And she was codependent and alcoholic. Now, I didn't even know she was alcoholic. And I was one of her closest, if not her closest friend. And I took care of her children. I was there at her second child's birth. She knew I had recovered from codependency, and she would talk to me and say, you're a survivor, how did you do it? And I knew she drank wine, mm-hmm. but I never saw her drunk. Oh. And she, This that, must be a familiar story, don't you think, Joyce? Absolutely, because um, you don't have to be a drunk on the street to be alcoholic. You could be a maintenance drinker where you're just drinking a little bit all through the day and people wouldn't even know you're drinking. You could be a binge drinker. You could maybe only drink on weekends or once every six months, but you're still an alcoholic, but it doesn't seem like it because it, it looks different. And prescription pain pills can work in the same fashion, can't they? Mm-hmm. So we'll go back to your friend's story well, then. Well, she... Um, I know she was codependent because I recognized that in myself. Mm -hmm. And so the two of us, without talking about the word codependency, would we were dear friends. We would help each other, and I would try to share what I had learned about getting well. I saw a beautiful woman who was a loving mother, but very much into controlling her whole environment, just like I had always done. Mm -hmm. Every part of it, and the drinking was hidden. I knew she drank once in a while, but I never knew she would eventually take her own life. She mixed drugs. She eventually got to a therapist and lied about her alcoholism and was treated for depression, was taking drugs for depression, and she was mixing that, and then that put her over the line. Well, in my practice, I've seen a lot of women who go for antidepressants and other kinds of pills, and they drink heavily with these pills. And, of course, all these pills say, do not drink. And people think that they're on a free ride. And I know a couple of friends of mine actually passed out from these combinations of pills and alcohol and not a good thing to do. Well, it interferes with the effectiveness of the medication. If you're taking antidepressants and then you drink on it, it it minimizes the effectiveness so you're not getting the full um, potential from the medication. Mm-hmm. And then people who take pain medication, say Vicodin or Oxycontin, and then also drink with it are maximizing it because then they're double mm-hmm. um, self-medicating. And we've heard many people in the media getting into really big trouble. And 
I'd have to say we all know the pressures of show business and what production schedules can do to people. And I'm not surprised that some of the big stars on television and in the movies get addicted to pain pills when actually they've had accidents on the sets or other things have happened or take pills to go to sleep. I mean, we've all heard stories about how Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, where they were actually giving them pills to wake up and giving them pills to go to sleep because that's what kept them tap dancing and singing and acting all day long. It was so abusive. And then now it's trickled into our society in other ways, not just for the people who are pushed into entertainment schedules, but people who are just housewives and people in careers that are just everyday careers, great careers, but the pressures sometimes are too much. And it has become apparent that people need or think they need some kind of chemical release, not thinking that they will be the person that becomes addicted. Right. And as we know now, there can be a genetic predisposition to addiction. And sometimes people think about that with alcoholism, but they forget about it with prescription medication. Exactly. Because it's prescribed by their doctors. Mm -hmm. And they might have an alcoholic parent, and then they think, well, maybe I have the genetic predisposition. But they don't include prescription medication when they're thinking about that. Mm -hmm. That's true. And also... Lately, we've heard in the news that house moms are letting out their houses for methamphetamine factories. And, of course, methamphetamine may be one of the worst drugs of all, and they call it an epidemic in this country now. And describe, Joyce, a little bit about what methamphetamine does to people's systems. Oh, there's a whole gamut that it does to people's systems. It affects the nervous system. It affects the organs. It affects the way they think. Um, you know, it speeds everything up. And um, it is an epidemic. There's a statistic about how it affects the dopamine. And I think this is really interesting, mm -hmm. that when you're just sitting here, you're releasing a certain amount of dopamine. If you eat sugar, you increase it 50%, the dopamine flow. Mm -hmm. With alcohol and marijuana, it's increased 125%. With cocaine, it's increased 250%. Oh Heroin and nicotine at the same level heroin, um, including all the opiates, and nicotine release like 350% more dopamine. And any guesses what methamphetamine is, if heroin is 350%? I'm holding my breath. 1,200%. Oh, and so that's why it's such an epidemic. When you think about you've had that high of releasing 1,200% more dopamine, which is the, the neurotransmitter that makes you feel good, when it's also more damaging because yes. of what it's doing to your Absolutely. physical body and, and so, your mind and so and your soul. Addictive. I mean, this is crazy. I mean, they mm -hmm. talk about stories uh, in films and so on that show heroin addiction and the terrible withdrawal from heroin or from other drugs. But I have heard stories that say that the methamphetamine withdrawal is just horrifying. How mm -hmm. do they actually get people off of it? Well, it doesn't actually take as long as the heroin detox. It only takes a couple days. But people don't want to go through it. Well, I can understand that. But certainly they have to if they want to lead a better life and want to actually stop the addiction and reconnect with their friends, their family, their loved ones, and with themselves. So we're going to close this segment. It's been very interesting. In our next segment, we're going to talk about how any kind of addiction can affect not just your spouse, but parents, children, co-workers, neighbors, even aunts and uncles. Learn about the difference between rescuing and enabling, and we'll address the issues of lying and the need for detachment. You know me, 
Ready for more? Log on to joankenley.com. That's K-E-N-L-E-Y. Talking Matters with Dr. Joan Kenley continues in a moment here on KRXA 540. You found it, and it's different. Talking Matters with Dr. Joan Kenley, right here on KRXA 540. Welcome back. You're listening to Talking Matters, and I'm Joan Kenley, here with my guests, Kay Copet and Joyce Goodell. We're talking about addictions, codependence, and recovery, what you need to know. There was an interesting story about a woman in the middle of a holiday feast enjoying her favorite pie and eggnog when her mother leans over and whispers, Honey, have you tried Weight Watchers? Those six words may wither anyone's soul. You might feel desperate to make mom recognize all the hard-won truths you've learned about the intrinsic value and beauty of your body. You'll want to argue, to explain, to get right in there and force your mother to approve of your appearance. Well, that isn't a good idea, but Joyce, what would you suggest the daughter do in this situation? In the moment, one of the things that the daughter could do would be detach. And one of the things that Melody Beatty talks about, who is a, uh, a very famous author of Codependent No More, she talks about detachment as um, not detaching from the person that a person cares about, but from the agony of the involvement. Oh, that's a great one, isn't it? And this daughter definitely has agony of involvement, yes. I'm sure, in a situation like this. And it's not completely detaching from her, but detaching from the emotional reaction. And at a Christmas dinner or holiday dinner, you know, if she stormed off and got really mad, you know, her mother That's would a drama. just... That's right. a drama. a movie. <laughs> it would create more drama and crisis, and the daughter wouldn't want to do this. But just to detach with love and look at the source. This is what mom does all the time. Mm-hmm. This is her behavior. Without a lot of education and a lot of therapy, her mom's probably not going to change. I think that's a very good point. So this is where we talk about um, detachment in this kind of a circumstance or even in a circumstance um, involved with alcoholic uh, spouses or family members mm-hmm. where you detach with love emotionally and just not get hooked into it. And she could even say, well, thanks very much, mom. You know, I'll consider that. Mm-hmm. So agreement is a one way to detach. And Probably, if she's having emotional reactions continually to her mother, I would suggest probably that she get into some kind of therapy so that she has some tools when this happens again and again, that she doesn't become too involved or too emotional. And another way is to set a boundary. If she wanted to choose to set a boundary in the moment, she could say, thanks, Mom, but I'll handle this myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love those answers because they do work. And do you have any stories, Kay, about family members, children, or grandparents, or aunts, or uncles, or neighbors? I have a story about my stepfather. That sounds good. When I was about 13, he came into our life. They were both alcoholic, my mother and my stepfather. And they fell madly in love, and they moved in together. He moved in with in our home. And in those days, nobody lived together, at least not in our neighborhood. It and was did very, you have brothers and sisters? I had a brother at mm-hmm. the time, one brother. And it was shameful. It was embarrassing for me. So I I kept it a secret. He was terribly abusive verbally. He also was abusive sexually. and But it didn't last long because I got help with that. One day, it was Christmas time, and we were 
wanted to have fun, wanted to play. And we bought a skinny little branch of a Christmas tree. This was a joke. And my brother and I went out, and it only held about maybe six skinny branches, and we put ornaments on it. And when they came home, we thought it would get a rise out of them that they'd laugh because the real tree that we had picked up was outside waiting to be decorated. We did all the decorating. Well, they came in, and my stepfather was so mad, and he got drunk and landed on the floor, oh, which, which happened all the time. We would walk over him. And when the word got out to my friends, because I had friends over that saw this, I lied about it because they said, he's just a drunk. You know, your mother's a whore. They called her a whore. They, I mean, it was, it, it was very uh, dramatic and emotional because of their drinking and their alcoholism. But I continued to say, he, he's not drunk. He's just a heavy drinker. I tried to protect my mom because well, I sure really you loved her and I would, I'd cover up for her. Well, that's so understandable. And let's say, how can uh, aunts and uncles and children get involved in this dynamic of addictive personalities? It doesn't, again, have to be just alcohol. But, for instance, if you have somebody addicted to a gambling problem, that really affects the family tremendously. I mean, do you have any stories about that, Joyce? Well, unfortunately, the family members are all involved, um, whether they realize it or not. You know, the most obvious cases are where, say, there's an addict and a partner and they possibly lose the children in the court system. And then grandparents would have to step in or aunts and uncles and take over and raise the children. That's the most obvious. But also in situations where the family members have to intervene because it's affecting them, it's affecting you know, the, everyone involved, and they have to do interventions because the people that are involved, just like in your situation, Kay, where you were kind of lying because you wanted so much to appear normal that you would lie to your friends to appear that way. And then oftentimes the extended family members will come in and do an intervention to say, no, this is not normal, you need help, and we've got to step in and help you. What I've observed is that gambling is often kept a big secret, just like a lot of other addictions. And until a family goes bankrupt or until they move away because of the shame of what's going on, many people don't realize what's going on. And I think you have a story, don't you, Kay, about yes. someone gambling? It was my brother. Oh, my. Um, he was a compulsive gambler all of his life. And when he married and produced two beautiful, beautiful girls, he kept it a secret because he made enough money in his business that he could. But eventually, that will take its toll. Eventually, that will show. My brother had borrowed so much money to invest in his businesses, and behind his partner's backs, he was gambling. And it escalated to such a point that he went bankrupt and lost everything and committed suicide. That is such a sad and story. And that is the reason he did it, because he owed so much money. And when he died, he left one partner with a debt of over $500,000 that, oh. that his partner had invested in him because he had believed in him. But let's talk about the difference between rescuing people from these addictions, enabling them to continue the addictions, and what can we talk about in terms of how do we react and deal? So what's rescuing anyway? What, how do you describe that, Joyce? Well, the natural tendency when somebody is in trouble is to want to rescue them. 
we want to take care of them, we want to help them fix it. And I think that's a normal tendency that people have. But when we cross the line and start trying to do it for them, you know, calling in to the boss when somebody is sick and they're really drunk. Children do this, spouses do it, parents do this for people. And um, that's when it crosses the line to rescuing and trying to fix rather than letting somebody face their own consequences. And again, this is where when we get into detachment with love, we let the person face their own consequences. If they're drinking, if they're gambling, if they're spend, having a spending addiction, when we allow them to face the consequences for the behavior and not rescue them and fix it for them, that's when healing can start occurring because they're having to face what their behavior has been. But how can you get to face, get them to face it with truth? In other words, if the denial is such a big issue, which we've talked about, mm -hmm. how can that truth seep through? I remember when Betty Ford was drinking and she was the wife of the president and she was in denial. They had to create a whole family intervention for her to actually get it, that she was doing something not only that hurt the family, hurt the country, hurt everybody around them. So where is that point where you can get into that person's addictive place and find a truthful place in them? Sometimes it happens with the person, that they just come to that on their own, mm -hmm. that they have a moment of lucid thinking where they, they think, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. And they ask for help. Oftentimes it doesn't, because we know that with all of these addictions comes denial, and then what happens with that is the person lies to themselves that they're doing it, and then they lie to everybody else. Right. So mm -hmm. many people come in to therapy and say to me, well, my loved one lies all the time, and they think that it's a unique <laughs> thing. <laughs> One-of-a-kind situation. Yeah. Right, but they soon find out as they listen in the groups that everybody does it. All the addicts do it because they're lying to themselves first, and then they have to lie to everybody else to perpetuate their addiction. So um, when that's broken, if, if it's by themselves or with an intervention from other people, it can be their family members confront them, all sit them down and say, look what's happened, this is what's been going on. Or it can be um, an inter intervention by the law where um, they get into a car accident or, or it can be a health intervention where they start getting very sick and that the health care uh, providers have to make an intervention. Well, those are all good points because it has to happen or the person will either die or remain sick for the rest of their lives and lose the people around them that they have loved and that have given life meaning to them. And everybody wants to connect and have life meaning at some point, but the biological addiction that comes through is so strong. But then there is a chemical that changes in the body when you have codependency and you were talking about that, I think, during the break, weren't you, Kay, about how physically your body changes when you're a codependent person? Oh, I was so uptight every minute of my life. I was sick all the time with colds, flu, sore throats, headaches, backaches, stomach aches. I felt like I needed to attach the heating pad to my stomach and walk around with it. I went through three heating pads in my life, wore them out. I, I slept with a heating pad my entire life. The stress is just amazing when you're into denial and you're, and you're trying to keep it all together and you're holding it and holding people up and lying for them and covering up. Oh, it's tragic. And I think you're talking about something in the stress factors that you were talking about. 
that diminishes the immune system. And yes. so that's why the body is more vulnerable to the aches and pains and diseases and problems and backaches that you were talking about, is that we have looked at the fact that nothing doesn't affect us somehow. Mm -hmm. And when we have dramatic circumstances in our life, the response is going to be dramatic. Mm -hmm. And we have to be aware of that as we look at the healing process. And we're going to uh, finish this segment, and we're going to come back with much, much more. So please stay tuned to hear about treatment options for addiction and codependency and how internal conflict is part of the picture. You'll find every moment interesting. Matters with Dr. Joan Kenley continues in a moment here on KRXA 540. The conversation continues on Talking Matters with Dr. Joan Kenley on KRXA 540. Welcome back. You're listening to Talking Matters, and I'm Joan Kenley here with my guests, Kay Copet and Joyce Goodell. We're talking about addictions, codependence, and recovery. What you need to know. And we promised we'd get into some treatment options with you. Denial, as we've talked about, is often considered to be at the root of addiction, so much so that loved ones will go to great lengths to try and get a person to change, including coercion, intimidation, manipulation, and pleas. It's quite a list. But interestingly, in one research study, the more a counselor confronted during the treatment, the more a person was drinking a year later. But that would be just with one type of person, I think. Even when there is overwhelming evidence of the need for change, often people do not change their behavior. In the 12-step program, lack of change is often associated with not hitting bottom. Yet many people who change their behavior never come close to hitting bottom. So what is all this business about hitting bottom, and what can either of you say about that? Well, one thing is that a bottom for one person can be a high bottom where they just have the threat of a spouse leaving them, for instance. And that's enough of a bottom for them to get really serious and say to themselves, I have to do something different because this is not working for me. Another person, a bottom could be losing their marriage, losing custody of their children, losing their job, losing their health, possibly being in jail, possibly even being put into a psych unit, for a weekend. These are great examples. <laughs> I mean, it really gives us a broader spectrum of, of what bottom is for people. And I don't think most people who've seen the movie Days of Wine and Roses or other films about alcoholism think that it has to be a knockdown, drag out, bottoming it out on the floor for days type of thing. Right. Or ending up in a flop house. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about some of the former ways that treatment centers dealt with addictions by being very confrontational and, and very hard-hitting. We're not so much that way anymore. Um, it's more encouragement and 
education. Mm-hmm. And we find that the more people understand what addiction is and that there's a biological, psychological, sociological, and spiritual component to addiction, the more they understand it and they learn about the brain chemistry and how brain chemistry functions and how it does with 10 to 15 percent of the population who are addicts have a different kind of brain chemistry than people who don't become addicts. And when they learn that, it takes some of the personal shame and and willpower and guilt um, and moral lack of moral character out of it. But when they realize, I have a disease and I have to treat this disease, people tend to want to recover better rather than with the intimidation and uh, shaming. Shaming is a huge part of addiction. Even if nobody is shaming you, I think the addict is either shaming themselves in the quiet of the night instead of in the denial that maybe is a present for them in the daytime and the recrimination that comes, the self-recrimination, the self-negative self-talk that comes with it. And so I think what we're expressing here today is that there are new ways to look at customizing therapy for the individual. And as we've talked about in our other health show, this isn't a cookie cutter kind of choice. It's an individual choice. Well, what do you think of the cure that we see presented in the media about these chemicals that are used in the body intravenously over a weekend where you put people to sleep and they're supposed to then come out of their addictions at the end of that period? Is that something that you think is a positive approach or not? Well, at our treatment center, we don't. (laughs) Um, We're here for your opinion. (laughs) Because... It's much more than that. It isn't just the chemical part of it. Of course not. Mm-hmm. It's the psychological, spiritual, and I think with emphasis on the spiritual, like you were saying before, Kay, and even when you were talking about um, not having feelings, like your feelings were frozen. And there's a great article by John and Linda Friel, a Ph.D. team from Minnesota, who wrote an article called Uncovering Frozen Feelings. And it talks about codependency and how when you have codependency and you're not in touch with your feelings, your feelings are frozen, what happens when you start unthawing them? You know, just everything comes out, especially if people are living in, whether it's chemically dependent families or dysfunctional families of any kind, it's one of the ways that people deal with it is by just shutting down all of their feelings. So when they start coming out, Things that can happen from that are chemical addictions, eating disorders, mm. obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, spending addictions, gambling mm-hmm. addictions, the behavior addictions. Yes, no, I understand that. And I think what I'd like to ask you, and I'm just being a devil's advocate here, is what if people got through the, the biological withdrawal of the drug through this chemical treatment in hospital program and then committed themselves to another 28 days of getting the emotions and the psychology of their addiction and their personal problems into the space? Would it work as a both-and therapy? I think so. I think it it probably could in that case. Um, The only reason I'm bringing it up is because as I imagine this, and I'm not connected with these kinds of things in my work, but I would say that if people could imagine that they don't have to go through the terribly painful withdrawal process physically, they would be more willing to go into recovery if they could skip that part of the, the physical problems. But on the other hand, I don't know how safe these drugs are, so we're not recommending this to our listening audience. We're just bringing up the question, what if? Well, um, where I work, we do have medication 
that does bring people down pretty gradually and without a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure the difference in some of these places that you're talking about and what most treatment centers are doing in making the withdrawal as easy as possible because it isn't like it used to be where people are just agonizing. You know, they're uncomfortable, but it's not unbearable. I think that's what we want to point out. Uncomfortable, but not unbearable so that there is this intrinsic feeling that there is some reward mm -hmm. as part of the recovery. Right. So terrific. Thank you so much for that good advice. And we will be coming back in the next hour with much, much more. You've been listening to Talking Matters. I'm Joan Kenley here with my guests Kay Copet and Joyce Goodell. We're talking about addictions, codependence, and recovery and what you need to know. And so coming up in our next hour, we'll talk about the agony of codependence. Can you really break through the problem? And what are the tools that work? You can hear that we have much more in Hour 2 of Talking Matters, and we'll keep talking, so you be sure to keep listening. It's getting better all the time. Getting so much better all the time. Invite your friends and family to listen to Talking Matters with Dr. Joan Kenley every Saturday, 3 to 5 p.m., right here on KRXA 540. You've found it, and it's different. Talking Matters with Dr. Joan Kenley, right here on KRXA 540. Hello, I'm Joan Kenley with Talking Matters, and our theme is Addictions, Codependence, and Recovery, What You Need to Know. It's a jam-packed hour, so stay around for our conversations about what tools are used in recovery, how anger, sorrow, comfort, and homework contribute to the path. We have our guests, Kay Copet and Joyce Goodell. They are so accomplished, and we've been having such a good time with them in hour one. Kay lives with her husband, Brian, and their adopted daughter, Mariah, nearby in the Oakland Hills. She has written and produced a documentary of her codependency story called I Survived, One Woman's Journey of Self-Healing and Transformation, which covers 15 years of living with an alcoholic. Besides being a mother and wife, she continues with her love of painting, writing, teaching, and speaking. Kay has published several articles and writes a monthly column for recoverytimes.com. Joyce works as a family therapist in the chemical dependency field. Her earlier career was in radio and television, advertising, promotion, and production, before she decided to return to graduate school to earn her master's degree in counseling psychology at JFK University. She's the head of the Family Therapy Program at Merritt Peralta Institute, which is part of the Alta Bates Summit Medical Center in Oakland. She also has a private practice that specializes in codependency issues. So welcome back, everyone. And we're here to say we need to know what these tools are going to be used in recovery. And I think, Kay, you have experienced some of them yourself. I have. The very first therapist that I had was the most special woman I think I've ever met. She was a spiritual psychologist. When I went in, I'd have an hour of traditional therapy, talking and listening and communicating. And then the second hour, she put me on a massage table and she would touch me and through her loving touch, I didn't say a word, would become these wonderful vibrations. And I don't think that there are many of those around, but she was amazing. And she'd give me homework. She'd have me 
take a hot bath and put Epsom salts in it. And she, the way she explained it is the Epsom salts would pull out the poisons or the toxins in my body. And I remember the very first time I did it, and I hadn't, I'd only taken showers because I was always in a rush. I always had to get it done quickly. This was for relaxation. I sat in the tub, and the first five minutes I was so anxious and nervous because I, I had never done that before. I wanted out. And she told me, every week, just keep adding, or every day, keep adding more time. And eventually I got up to where I could lounge in the tub for an hour, and that was terrific. She had me write down everything that I love to do, like take a walk in the park. She made me make a list of about 10 things, and she said, whenever you get depressed, pick one of those items and go do it. Just do it. And I did. Right now, I can't think of any other ones, but... Those are great. Mm. Those are wonderful ones. And in fact, I've heard and used this myself, gratitude journals. For instance, writing in it every day to tell yourself each day that there's so much to be grateful for. And have both of you found that that's a good oh. practice as well? I often have clients do a gratitude list at the end of the day, especially with couples, where they say that they're one, they're grateful about one thing about the other person and about themselves, and then also if there are any resentments. Mm-hmm. Because um, if we hold resentments over to the next day, that's when we can get into trouble. Another thing that I have clients do, and I was taught this in my early codependency recovery by a therapist, is that um, you write down at age zero to five what you remember, what you heard, what you saw, and what you felt, and then age five to ten, then ten to fifteen, fifteen to twenty, and then usually just kind of end at twenty. But it's, it's really pretty remarkable when you write that out, and then you look as you read it over, and it's helpful to do it with a therapist then, and look at the patterns in your life. That sounds like a wonderful practice, and I'm sure it's very useful and probably can shorten how you see what your patterns are really quickly. One thing that she had me do every week, and at first I was adverse to this, she had me pick a girlfriend, even if it was an acquaintance, and call her up and invite her to dinner and go out for dinner. Because as a codependent, I became isolated, terribly isolated, because all I wanted to do was be with my husband, be with the person I was controlling, and I didn't have any friends anymore. And I was lonely. And so I did that. I called a girl, and that woman and I are friends today, and this is 30 years ago or 40. But you probably didn't feel you were lonely till she pointed it out. Well, I was afraid to do it because my life was immersed with this one man. Exactly. And I only thought about him, what he did, what he wasn't doing. Is he, you know, crashing a car? Is he stealing money? What's going on? Mm -hmm. And I was pulling away from him. She helped me unlock from him. It was like an umbilical cord, tug and pull with this man, a codependent. And we were just joined. Mm-hmm. at the hip, mm-hmm. and she helped me unlock. And I didn't have any friends at that time, no, and it was lonely, and going and doing, and my girlfriend was the same way. It turned out she was had been with an addict. She was a codependent recovering. I didn't know this, and we bonded. And it was, and then, of course, over the years, my friendships grew and grew. But, oh, but that was a beginning, and it was wonderful. Well, what do you find, uh, Joyce, in your therapy practice about how anger is involved in the recovery process? Well, 
Interestingly enough, um, anger is a very important part of the recovery process, especially in codependency. Oftentimes, first of all, somebody is very numb, like you were talking about, Kay, that you're numb, you have no feelings, or that you're aware of. And then all of a sudden, you get very sad. You know, you oftentimes people go into depression and they just cry and cry and cry. And then they start getting more energy and they start getting angry and realizing what has happened. And so that's along the healing process that I, I do believe that you have to get to anger and get everything out about what you're angry about so that you can eventually get to forgiveness, forgiveness of the other person. And for also a big part of it is forgiveness of yourself for being so naive and for not taking care of yourself. But isn't that part of the sad, mad sort of teeter-totter that we can look at, that sometimes people go to sadness because they're so afraid of getting angry, and they're afraid they'll just explode and they'll never stop being angry. And so it's easier to be sorrowful and internal rather than to be external and angry. And so don't you find that that's a problem? Especially women, because it seems like in our culture it's okay for women to be sad and cry, and it's not okay to be angry for a woman. For men, it's okay to be angry but not to cry and be sad. Well, on that note... I blocked anger so severely that I would tell people, my friends, I don't get angry. I never do. I thought that was normal. Oh, dear. Yes, never. And the way I got it out and started to allow myself to be angry was a therapist made me uh, hit the cushions every time something bothered me the least bit. I mean, she said, hit it harder, hit it harder. She'd make it, she'd put me in front of the sofa and have me do it. And it felt really strange, so strange. But I trusted her. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't trusted too many people. So I did that. And eventually, I w- it, it all, it started coming out. Well, that's and a I- technique that works. I've heard of that many times. People take a tennis racket and hit the pillows at home, or mm-hmm. they take their fist and punch their pillows and, it's an action that releases these pent-up emotions, and then the feelings that are pent up can actually come out, and you can examine them and be curious and interested and move along your path to recovery because anything that activates your recovery is worth trying, whether it's a journal, whether it's punching the pillows, whether it's listening to music, meditating, going for walks in nature. We have a whole slew of things we can choose to do, and again, it has to be customized to each individual. And some people feel like these feelings are never going to end. If they start crying or getting depressed, they feel like they're never Mm going to end. Or that if they get angry, that will never end. But if we can encourage people to let them know it will end. It Mm -hmm. will. The more Mm -hmm. they move through it, the more it will release and subside and Mm -hmm. it, it won't last forever. Well, they say that's a sign of good health, that you know your depression will end or your anger will end, that this isn't a forever feeling. And, of course, people need to be coached about that because when people are in deep depression, they think that's the way the whole life is going to go on and on and on about. And that's not a good thing. And especially if people have had frozen feelings mm-hmm. and they haven't felt anything and then they start crying or they start getting angry, it's so unfamiliar to them that they feel like it's going to last forever. And what about the issue of guilt? Did you come across that in your recovery, Kay? You know, I blocked it. I really That's did. interesting. My guilt came up many, many years later after I had already worked through so many other issues. Mm-hmm. I felt guilty for not being aware that I was sick. Oh. It was very odd. That's I mean, I thought it was odd. Sure, sure. I didn't feel guilty about anything I had done with other people. Mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. No, I, I felt I did the best I could. 
well, in, you those, did. in the in those situations, but I felt guilty about my own not taking care of myself, my right. own ill health. Right. Well, in my practice, I always said that guilt was a useless emotion, but it doesn't mean that people don't have yeah. it. And I'm sure that in your clinic and in your work, you approach guilt in a certain way, don't you, Joyce? Well, we look at guilt as being a barometer of some kind of a feeling. So it can give you um, a barometer that something's going on. Not to stay in it, especially mm -hmm. guilt and shame, not to stay in it. But there is a little healthy guilt to have us have a conscience. I can see that point of view. It's a wake-up call. But to stay in it, again, right. it becomes useless if you stay in it. Right. Yeah, so that's a good thing to look at. So we're going to wrap up this segment. It's been chock full of wonderful things. And we'll be back in just a few minutes. We're going to talk about how codependents don't allow themselves to be powerful, to have specific boundaries, or to be healthfully competitive. Stories about shame, insecurity, and giving yourself away. Be sure to stay tuned. You'll want to hear what we say about all of this. Judge not your brother, walk on mile in his shoes. You see he's doing the best that he can do. Like me and you. Talking Matters with Dr. Joan Kenley will continue in a moment on KRXA 540. The conversation continues on Talking Matters with Dr. Joan Kenley on KRXA 540. Welcome back. You're listening to Talking Matters. I'm Joan Kenley here with my guests Kay Copet and Joyce Goodell. Today we're talking about addictions, codependence, and recovery and what you need to know. And we're going to start out, however, with our producer, Jing Langmuir, who has a story about noticing codependence and going beyond it. Jean, tell us your story. I was, I've been noticing codependence in myself for many years now and watching the kinds of thoughts that would come up. And in my life, it was often about making someone else unhappy. I tried very hard to not say things that would make people unhappy. I was a people pleaser. I didn't want to have any anyone be particularly unhappy with me at any time. And it would be very insidious in the ways that these thoughts would come up, and I would notice them sometimes. But it, I had a really very specific experience just last year when I ended up uh, hiring a personal shopper. Now, I'm a librarian. This is not something that librarians necessarily do, but this was, I, as a librarian, I wanted to. I hired a personal shopper. We spent a lot of money. I got some beautiful clothes, and I was scared to wear them to work. I found myself feeling anxious about wearing them to work and having thoughts about how it was going to make one of my coworkers uncomfortable. Well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. That's called having a codependent thought. Mm -hmm. So how did you and recover from that? I just, I had, I just wore them anyway. Well, good for you. <laughs> I wore them anyway, and I went to work, and uh, lo and behold, they liked it. <laughs> so it was a really quite a wonderful remedy for all of that in anxiety. But it, I guess, the thing that was the most telling for me was to see how easy it was for those thoughts to creep in. Mm -hmm. And did they come from your history or oh, from well, your they family? Just come, they're just a part of my conditioning, part of the, my, the, my conditioning of my ideas about myself that are not about who I really am. True. And, of course, and that's, that's an important point. Who you really are 
is what all of the recovery is about. Right. It's about not behaving like a person with a mask or a person who's trying to please. For instance, I heard a story about from a girlfriend in college about how she thought that she was so talented at becoming a chameleon that she would become any woman for any man that wanted her to be a certain way. So if a man wanted her to be strong and outspoken, that's what she would do. If a man wanted her to be quiet and serene and sedate, she would do that. And she was under the illusion that this was a great talent that she had rather than this was an example of giving herself away. And so here we have another example of codependency, trying to do anything to please people, to get love, and to be loved. It was def very definitely that uh, kind of behavior that I learned and that I'm working at getting over. There you go. Thank you so much, Jean. So, Kay, I think you have a story about how you gave yourself away when you were younger. Could you tell us about that? I'd be happy to. When I was a teenager, I was very interested in dancing mm -hmm. and art. And I did those things to get out of my house. Although I loved dancing, I didn't want to be around the chaos and the drunkenness. That makes sense. And I approached the man who was the producer of the talent show at my high school and told him that I was a choreographer. I just made it up. Oh, I, had I, never, love it. I had never done that before. And I said, I can do this. And he gave me the music, and I went home, and I made up all the dances. Well, when I came back and realized that the costume designer wasn't going to, what I thought, clothe my dancers the way I saw this dance in motion, I went home behind everybody's back, controlling the situation, and designed 35 costumes. 35? 35. Then I went back to school and said, here is my display of costumes. And he was so impressed. And then the next question was, well, who's going to make them? I said, I will. And I went home and made. It took three months' work. I cut school. I did all of this dramatic hard work and energy for one reason, and that was I needed love and attention from my mother so badly that I was doing this for her. I was doing this to impress her. I was doing this to get a, a rise out of her, to get her to notice me, to pay attention to me, anything. And you see, that's the crime in all of these codependency dynamics, is that you can't go get love with a deed. You can get love by being who you are. And most of the time, there's this great expenditure of energy in trying to prove that you're wonderful, prove that you get good grades, that you're okay, that you know how to dress, that all the things, the lists are endless. But in the end, just because of who you are, is the biggest reason to be loved. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people around you are not in the frame or a space to give that to you. Mm -hmm. And that makes the sad story. And that's the giving away of yourself. Mm -hmm. So thank you for telling us that. You're welcome. And Joyce, do you have some stories that we're talking about here? Well, with what Kay's talking about with her mother, it, it just brings up the um, issue of that it doesn't have to be that people get wounded just from an alcoholic or addict and become codependent. I mean, she sounds very narcissistic, whereas she didn't have a real idea of who she was. The mother. The mother. And so, you know, the costumes and your talent has nothing to do with that she's not talented, but she took it with the friends saying, almost meaning that, well, why would you have an, a talented daughter? That it was taking something away from her. And so when she doesn't have a sense of herself, then it's very difficult for a parent then to give that 
to the child, if your mother doesn't have a sense of herself, and then to feel confident that she can give you that. And so this is where a lot of people are wounded and codependency um, flourishes, you know, with environments like this where you have no uh, sense of self. And then you continue to want to prove that you were worthy, but then ultimately you have to let that go and take care of yourself and be okay for you. And that's that's a hard lesson to learn. Very you know, hard to lesson. just be, and that's okay. Um, but I think ultimately in codependency, that's where we have to get to. Um, I have one story that I usually share with clients. I think everybody knows Christopher Reeve yes. or who Christopher Reeve was and his wife, Dana. And it, um, But I didn't know much about Christopher Reeve until his accident. Mm-hmm. And probably most people didn't. I mean, we knew he was an actor in Superman and, and all that. And we knew who he was. Sure. But about who he really was, the content of his character and what an incredible human being he was as his authentic self mm-hmm. became much more apparent after his accident than before when he was this wonderful actor. And I think even his wife, Dana, we might not have ever really known who she was. You know, people that are on Broadway might know who she was and people like that. But um, it was it's her authentic self and Christopher's authentic self that really had an opportunity to blossom after his accident. So oftentimes I ask people, do you even know what an authentic self is? Mm -hmm. You know, who you truly are and what is that? Right. And of course, with her recent death, it it brings sort of this huge collective sorrow that people can have about people that they truly admire and know inside of themselves they have the same qualities. But when you come back to the stories of, of what don't codependents allow themselves to be, how does powerful work into that story? Well, sometimes codependent people can be powerful in trying to fix and change people. Oh. And they can be strong and um, overly competent, just like you were with the costumes and all of that. But yet about their own lives, you know, taking power to set boundaries, to be who they are, to be, to take care of your own needs. Oftentimes we take care of our wants Mm-hmm. Um, because you had the want to uh, feel needed, but yet your own need for sleep, for going to school, the things that you needed to take care of about your life, um, oftentimes we're not powerful in those ways. Um, and allowing our light to shine, like Jean was talking about with the coworker, and ultimately, you know, you risked it and wore the clothes to work and the coworker was okay, but you were wounded early on about not overshining uh, your mother. And so um, when we feel like we can't be all that we are because we're going to hurt somebody else, then we have to diminish our own light and not be as powerful because we're afraid that we're going to hurt somebody else. It's not that we're not powerful, but we're afraid to show it because mm-hmm. we think we're going to hurt somebody else. Well, I think that's a very good point. And I think by being specific here, our listeners will learn for themselves what they might be codependent about that they might not have known before or recognize that in other people. And there's nothing wrong with observing your friends and your family and learning more and learning how to share that with your friends and family. And that's, of course, why we call the show Talking Matters, because we want people to sit down at the dinner table or around the coffee table and say, let's talk about where we all appreciate each other and how we all see that 
we might have some dynamics that we could improve upon. And can we be objective enough to write them down on a piece of paper with our gratitude for each other, but to say, we'd like to break some patterns, we'd like to break some codependency, we'd like to be a healthier family, we have some hopes and dreams for what our family and our life can look at, is it possible to open the question? And of course, questions are much more objective than blame or shame or you did this or I don't like what you do about that. So we will come back in our next segment and talk about shame, insecurities, and what you need. Can you admit that to yourself? We've got some ideas, so stay tuned. Ready for more? Log on to joankenley.com. That's K-E-N-L-E-Y. Talking Matters with Dr. Joan Kenley continues in a moment here on KRXA 540. The conversation continues on Talking Matters with Dr. Joan Kenley on KRXA 540. Welcome back. You're listening to Talking Matters. I'm Joan Kenley here with my guests Kay Copet and Joyce Goodell. Today we're talking about addictions, codependency and recovery and what you need to know. And in this segment we want to talk about how we handle shame and how we feel about it and whether we hide it and what do we do to recover from it and what are the insecurities that are felt around people that are around addicts and who are codependent around addicts and also what does the self need? What do you need? Well, do you learn how to ask for what you need? So do you want to start us off, Joyce? Well, when we talk about shame, I think when people feel very shameful, they feel that they don't deserve good things happening to them. And it's almost like they look at themselves as not just making mistakes, but that they are a mistake. Oh, my mm-hmm. goodness. I mm-hmm. hadn't thought of it Which that way. pretty heavy. That's you very know, heavy. When you feel like, well, I'm not just making mistakes, but I am a mistake, and mm-hmm. I don't have a right to be who I am. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so much exist, but exist in who I am. And mm-hmm. if people knew who, what my thoughts are and what my feelings are, they wouldn't like me. And there are many avenues that that can, how that can develop, uh, you know, just in families, you know, mm-hmm. where we have to go underground, whether it's our political beliefs, our religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine if somebody were um, a gay boy, for instance, mm-hmm. and grew up in, let's say, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and had to just go underground his whole life and not be who he was. I mean, that it could develop that way, too. Sure. Mm-hmm. So that shame that develops and then feeling of not deserving and not even taking care of a person's own needs. In the recovery movement, we talk about uh, the acronym HALT, H-A-L-T, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Well, that's a great one. And that we, Say it again, just so we can get that. Uh, and I'm going to add a couple S's on to the oh, halt. So oh, halt. Go ahead, add S's. Go ahead. <laughs> um, hungry, angry, mm-hmm. lonely, tired, and then stressed and scared. Mm. That's a great list and a great way to think about it because we do want to halt all these things. Or mm-hmm. S's at the end. <laughs> Right. And if we don't pay attention to those things, you know, sometimes, I mean, think of how you feel at the end of the day when you're tired, but you real, you start eating because you don't know whether you're hungry or tired, but you start eating to get more energy. But you, what you really need is just to sleep. Mm-hmm. And in codependency and addiction, too, oftentimes people have no clue what they're really feeling. 
And because they haven't been raised with having that feedback of, you know, what are you feeling? And having somebody listen at a deep level and reflecting. Okay, in spades. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this shame can actually lead to feeling extremely insecure. Right. And when we're insecure, we feel very small, I think. And I think when people feel small, they don't feel that they actually can show up in the world. And that's probably the most diminished feeling people can have. And then that gets into the whole issue of being wounded mm -hmm. and feeling not feeling the heart, but having a huge wound in the heart. And then we feel like we can focus on other people and their needs and take care of their needs, but we can't do that for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So this is you know, how to heal, to start healing shame is by having self-care and even knowing what that is. Well, can you describe self-care to us? Well, we can even just start with the hungry, angry, lonely, tired, <laughs> okay. stressed and scared of, of, you know, what am I feeling and what do I need? Mm -hmm. So am I hungry? I need to eat lunch. Mm -hmm. You know, am I tired? I need to drop everything I'm doing and take a nap or get mm -hmm. to bed earlier. Or if I'm angry, I need to talk about it with somebody. Um, if or I'm even lonely, feel the anger. I mean, there is justifiable it. anger. So mm -hmm. in right. other words, feeling angry isn't always wrong. It's what form it takes and what mm -hmm. you do with it. Right. So just acknowledging those things and then giving yourself permission to take care of it yourself or get somebody else to help you take care of it. Mm -hmm. That's really good. And have you worked with this in your own recovery, Kay? I have. I, I couldn't recognize any of those qualities or traits. I mean, I was absolutely scared, running scared. That's what I mm -hmm. thought about myself all the time. When I was with my ex-husband, we had a ceramic school in Marin, and we got up in about 5 in the morning and worked until about 10 at night, running, running. We'd eat a Burger King or a McDonald's or whatever, rushing because there wasn't time to prepare a meal. And I was very insecure about what people thought about me. I had to be perfect on the job. And the way I started learning about other people, actually, I think it was sort of voyeurism in a way, but I would follow couples in this grocery store. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing to admit that. When I'd be shopping, if I'd see a happy couple, I just, I felt like I'll never be in that place because there's something wrong with me. I'm not well. And I would watch them and see if I could pick up anything that they did together that made them a healthy, happy couple. Of course, I didn't, but <laughs> you know, it's like try, like we said earlier, trying to go to the movies and get a message that really changes your life. And sometimes it can, but it's not lasting if you haven't worked through the issues and worked through the problems that have put you there in the first place. Right. And last week when we were talking about happiness, we also said, what's the difference between long and short-term therapy? Well, whatever works is what's right. And so you can't really compare apples and oranges. There are some situations where short therapeutic work is just what you need. But basically, when you're recovering, these 28-day programs you were talking about earlier, Joyce, how do they compare in the addictive recovery process to, let's say, realizing that you might have to take a couple of years to really resolve your therapy? Well, what we usually say to people is that when you stop asking how long will this take, mm -hmm. that's the beginning of your recovery. Because... Mm -hmm. Basically, it takes your whole life. Mm -hmm. It's a process. Mm -hmm. It's an ongoing process. You get inundated with major information and, and processing when you're in 28-day treatment. And then after that, you spend the rest of your life working on it, especially with codependency, because it's very easy to be codependent 
on a daily basis. <laughs> I would think so. And in fact, a lot of this is what I would call habit. You learn to mm -hmm. do it unconsciously as a child to survive, mm -hmm. and then it becomes the habit of your life. <laughs> when I really got in touch with my illness, that I was unbalanced, I was panicked because I thought there was no way that I could get well in this lifetime because I, that's how sick I felt, mm. that it would take, I just couldn't make it. And so for me, surviving and having such a happy life, it just, it's like a miracle. It well, the fact that you mentioned earlier that you started your re good recovery at around 40 mm -hmm. should give many listeners hope because in my therapy practice, I would have 24-year-olds tell me, that if they didn't get their life together in the next year, it was never going to happen. I right. mean, life was over. There's this expectation in our culture now that we should be well right out of the box or we mm -hmm. shouldn't have problems or we should make a terrific living by 23. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting instant mashed potatoes society that we're living in. Mm -hmm. And I hope that some of the listeners in their 20s and 30s will take a good look at what their behaviors are, what their patterns are, and also look to see that at any age recovery is possible. And I think that there's also something in our culture that we get from fairy tales, I guess, that there I is this... I think fairy tales is probably where a lot of stuff <laughs> started. <laughs> or maybe from Star Wars movies, I don't know. But the happily ever after, that we think, well, by next year when mm -hmm. I handle all this, then I'm going to be hap live happily ever after. I'm going to be happy all the time. I'm never going to be angry again. I never will be sad again. And that's really a fallacy because that's part of life that we have all of those feelings, and that's mm -hmm. not necessarily a bad thing. Jean, you spoke to us earlier during the break about a story related to shame. Could you tell that to us? It was a turning point, I think, in my own personal development, really, because I learned a lot about myself in this particular moment. I was going down to the wedding, going down to Los Angeles to the wedding of a very close friend of mine. And I'd made a very specific uh, point of getting there. I was there, and I also, though, called up another friend that I had known and who lived in Santa Monica, and I wanted to see her. And I spent a lot of lovely time with that friend before the wedding, I spent too long with a friend, and I got lost on the way to Long Beach. This wedding was in the Queen Mary. And I was late to the wedding. It meant that I missed the wedding and didn't get there until it was over. almost makes me want to cry right now. Oh, I, was, I felt sick. awful. But what I felt most was shame. And I mm -hmm. felt that in my whole body. It was like it overtook me over. Mm -hmm. The other thing that happened is along with the feeling of shame was this immediate desire to blame my friend. It was her fault. Oh. She had kept me from getting in the car. Mm. And if she hadn't been talking so much, I wouldn't be late. This really didn't go down very well with my better self. No. And I had to actually recognize that this was not her fault and even that I wasn't a bad person. Mm -hmm. And that I also got to identify for the future what the feeling of shame really feels like so that when it came on me, I could then try to get beyond it, as I did with this other codependent stuff also, but that it would give me an opportunity to go, excuse me, you are not welcome in my body. Oh, what a great way to say it. <laughs> you are not welcome in my body. And it, this was the real, real beginning of me being able to do that. 
Well, what a terrific way to end this segment. And stay tuned, everyone, because next we're going to talk about what happens at the beginning of long-term recovery and what keeps recovery on course. And is there a greater power or the God force or a higher self that comes in to contribute to wellness? Don't miss it. Talking Matters with Dr. Joan Kenley will continue in a moment on KRXA 540. You've found it, and it's different. Talking Matters with Dr. Joan Kenley, right here on KRXA 540. You're listening to Talking Matters. I'm Joan Kenley, here with my guests, Kay Copet and Joyce Goodell. We're talking about addictions, codependence, and recovery, and what you need to know. We'll talk about what's involved in long-term recovery and what contributes to staying well. Kay, I think you have a story you want to start with about long-term recovery. I had been in recovery about seven years when I met my husband. And I was doing well, but I still needed to go to a lot of groups and individual therapy. And we had a fight one day. I don't even know what it was. Something not that important, insignificant. Fights usually aren't about something (laughs) important, are they? (laughs) And I did not know how to communicate. I didn't know how to balance that. Any kind of confrontation was so overwhelming to me because it felt like chaos. It felt like screaming. I mean, not that he's a screamer. I was the one that was the screamer. But it felt so uncomfortable that I ran away. I absolutely left the house and I went to a motel. I mean, it was a big deal. And he was, and this man was so sweet and loving. He called my closest friend. He said, what happened to her? And she said, oh, don't worry. She'll come back. You know, this, she does this sometimes. She was, she had been with me through my recovery and he did hang in there. And the next day I came back and he said, Kay, you're scaring me. I don't understand this. And he forced me in a loving way to talk to him and I did that more than once. <laughs> it didn't stop there. But then over the years, those those periods became further and further apart. And I'd have to thank him, right, if he were here for loving me and caring for me because it did help me so much in my growth and learning to love myself because he didn't abandon me. Well, that's a beautiful story and a wonderful one. And obviously everybody deserves love and your recovery was your struggle for wellness, and it worked. And at what point in your marriage to your current husband did you decide to adopt a child? It was after 10 years of marriage. It's not that we didn't want one. We tried, actually, when I got married. But because I was 19 years older, I was already, I was 45 mm-hmm. when, when I married him. And it, it was, I was past the childbearing years, you know, even though we did make the attempt. And the reason we didn't go out and adopt right then is because I was caring for my my aunt who was ill. And she died in 92. And right when she died, I I said to him, Brian, I really want a family. I'm finally married to a a loving, balanced man. We have a great marriage. And he said, Kay, any woman who's 50 years old who wants to, go for it. But you have to go out and do all the research, and then I'll back you when you get down to choices. And he did. So at 54, we adopted a baby, and now she's 10. 
now. And it's, it's she's the joy of our life. It's been a, a fabulous experience. Well, then, for you, in a way, life almost began at 50 instead of at 40, as it they did. say. And that's very encouraging to all the women listeners who are saying, well, what's going to happen next? Anything can happen next. And it's given me the opportunity to be a healthy mother. You bet. It's helped me, my own growth and my own development, because now I can do what I always longed for myself. Oh, that's a good combination, isn't it? It is. Beautiful story. So what do you have to say about long-term recovery in your practice, Joyce? Well, one thing that just came to mind as Kay was talking was we always say, don't give up before the miracle happens. Oh, I love that. (laughs) And they happen every day. I don't think that I would be able to work in this field if miracles didn't happen all the time, because they do. And uh, we call them sort of, this is a higher power thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, event. Mm-hmm. And um, so when they happen, it's pretty amazing. And But the advice I would give is that, you know, just not to give up. Trust the process. Trust that the process just sort of has a life of its own. I think that the people that don't make it give up. Mm-hmm. And they just say, this is too hard. It's too ongoing. Uh, you know, I just don't want to work this hard. And it does take focus. Mm -hmm. And you have to not ignore the fact that you're codependent or not ignore the fact that you have an addiction. And it isn't just forgetting, because I don't think people forget that they have this going on, but they they actually have to consciously ignore it, and that's when they kind of slip off. Mm -hmm. Well, also, we must give tribute to those spouses and family members who are willing to go through the recovery journey because it is a long process. Mm-hmm. And people do slip off some from time to time. It doesn't mean they've slipped off forever. But places like Al-Anon, which is Recovery and Alcoholics Anonymous for the families, what other types of therapies are available for families and relatives of those people in recovery who may not understand what's going on if they don't get some information separate from their loved one about the recovery process? Well, other than Al-Anon and the 12-step groups like AA and NA, and there are also some uh, groups like LifeRing that are not um, designed to have a higher power mm-hmm. you know, involved. But Narcotics Anonymous is NA. Right. And that still is involved with the higher power yes. concept. and 12-step. Okay. Yeah, all okay. 12-step programs mm-hmm. you know, talk about the higher power. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also you know, individual therapy groups. I have a group that's been going for 10 years. Well, tell us about codep- that. It's a codependent group that started 10 years ago with six people and two therapists. There was another male therapist and myself. He has since moved away. So um, it's just myself with these six people, and three of them are the original people. And it's been an ongoing, amazing group and just growing and developing, you know, watching things change over the years. Early on, it was kind of a basic codependency group where they were focused on their alcoholic or addict spouse. Now it's graduated into just looking at codependency issues because most of the people either have split up from the spouse or the person is in recovery. So they're looking at everyday life issues of codependency and how to be focusing on themselves, taking care of themselves, um, you know, working on these issues in an ongoing fashion. So there are groups like that. Mm -hmm. Um, that are designed to work on codependency. Um, I've also run groups for uh, chemical dependency, you know, ongoing, like continuing care groups that are ongoing. One of them lasted about five years. And individual therapy, 
people need to have therapists who really um, specialize in addiction or codependency because a lot of therapists really don't understand it. So it's very important that they do they are working with somebody who understands this. I couldn't agree with you more because in my own work, I didn't work with any alcoholics or codependents because that wasn't my field of expertise. So it's I'm learning a lot today from both of you because this is a very important subject and it does need very customized training. There are so many codependent people in this world and so many of our problems and our the couples that are divorcing and is because they're in this relationship with an addict and they may not even recognize that they have a problem themselves. Of course not. And what I've noticed just in conversation in general is that codependence was a word that was in the media a lot about 10 years ago and it's fallen out of the vocabulary a little bit. So why do you think that's happened? Can either of you tell me a little bit more about why that word codependence is not as much in the media or in the newspapers and magazines as it used to be? Maybe it was overused and also it's complicated mm -hmm. to a lot of people. Um, some people just think it's enabling or they just think it's, um, it has to do with um, being an addicted family and as we have talked about here today it's a lot broader than that so I, I do think that people get confused mm -hmm. and so maybe they're not using it as much because people really don't understand it mm -hmm. and also maybe there was a connotation that a codependent person was like a doormat mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's actually not the truth, is it? It's Tell no. me how the opposite of doormat works into codependency. Well, most of the people that I see coming into treatment are not doormats. The family members, especially the spouses, are the opposite of doormats. They're usually very overly accomplished, overly responsible, overly caretaking. They have a high tolerance, a, a huge tolerance for people's aberrant behavior. They have a capacity to tolerate lots of dysfunctional behavior, and they're overachievers. So this isn't the image of what most people think of as a doormat. Right, but you, don't you think that's true, that people thought of codependence as sort of, you know, people that were willing to just bend with the wind and not speak up and serve the other person and serve the addiction? Yes. So maybe that's where the term kind of fell off a little bit because people were a little bit confused about well, that. It's not a nice sounding word. <laughs> no, it is. It's, it's ugly. Mm. And nobody wants to be thought of that way. That's it's labeling true. a person. And that's the one of the first things that I felt in therapy. I don't like, you know, having a label. But I do. I mean, I am codependent. <laughs> well, if we're going to look at ourselves truthfully and we have to name it and claim it, I guess we have to say, okay, fine, I am, if you are. And even though labeling isn't a good thing, like personality types, people don't want to be labeled in a personality type, it helps people to understand themselves, too. So we have to look at both sides of the story. I think Jean has a wonderful story about breaking the chain of codependency with her lovely daughter Jessica. So we need to uh, turn to Jean for that wonderful story. Yeah, Joan, I, I had the, the great um, gift of having an absolutely beautiful daughter and, and bearing her and loving her and bringing her up. And the thing that I remember more than anything, I don't know, maybe she was a week old or something like that, and she was wiggling herself on the bed in the bedroom and glaring at me and saying, excuse me, but I'm myself. 
<laughs> and it was, now that could have been me projecting. <laughs> and on the other hand, it's in their eyes from the beginning. And it's more about recognizing it. And so I really made a point in raising her to recognize that in her. It was something, often when we're in life, we do what we didn't necessarily receive ourselves. It was something that my parents didn't really understand about kids, that they really were different, that I wasn't like my sister. I was a different person, and even though I was two years younger and we looked kind of alike, we weren't the same. And so I ended up not really knowing how to express myself fully at all. And so that it was, I felt that it was my job to just make sure that this girl got to say whatever she needed to say and be, and mostly be who she is, just to be able to live her life and be who she is. And uh, she's terrific. Well, she's a very good friend of my son, Roland, and I have known Jessica over the years. And she's a spectacular young lady, and I know how proud you are of her, but I also adore her as well. <laughs> So we're coming to the end of our show. We have just love having our guests and having Jean also tell her stories. To everyone tuned in, thank you so very much for being part of our listening audience. Enormous gratitude to our informative guests, Kay Copet and Joyce Goodell. It's important for you to know that this show is co-created with our guests for your benefit and for you to think about why talking in the way we're suggesting can matter to you. And we absolutely want you to tune in for our show next Saturday. Our theme will be music and creativity. Our guests will be Lawrence Rosenthal and Margaret Elson. Lawrence is a musical composer for film and television and has won eight Emmy Awards. Margaret is a prominent pianist in the Bay Area as well as a teacher, therapist, and author. You won't want to miss it. And be sure to visit my website, joankenley.com. You'll find helpful, practical suggestions for your mind, body, heart, and soul. And if you'd like to comment on the show, don't hesitate to email me. You'll find the address on my website. And again, huge thanks to those who made this show possible today. Peter B. Collins, Christy Healy, Ben Manila, and Jim Swenson. And here in the studio, Shane Sharkey and Jean Langmuir. So in the meantime... Keep talking and keep tuning in to Talking Matters, Saturdays at 3.